We're beginning a new series on the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with your host, Robert Louis Abrahamson. We're still in the midst of series one on Dante's Inferno, but it's now time to start another series, this time going through Shakespeare's Tempest, probably his final play. Our aim is to bring us close to the play itself, its rhythms and textures, so we get a sense of the exciting development of the drama and the interplay between characters. Shakespeare does not provide a lot of details. We have to gather as much as we can from the words the characters speak. We're not told anything about their tone of voice. Is a character angry or tender or perhaps even just putting on an act? All these things are up for interpretation, and I hope I can point out as we go several possibilities of interpretation. Oh yes, and the poetry. We will occasionally have to stop and just spend time with a passage, becoming aware of the language and what it is saying and the deftness with which Shakespeare develops the nuances of an image or a metaphor. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the political issues to do with the play, the issues of colonization or treatment of women or moral and social assumptions in opposition to our assumptions today. These are important, but they are treated elsewhere. Our aim here is to enhance our engagement with the play itself. Oh, by the way, did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? Yes, there's a lot of controversy about this question, and, and good convincing points on both sides. But that discussion also takes us away from the engagement with the play itself, and so I'll just speak here about Shakespeare, or if you'd like, Shakespeare, in inverted commas. We can go elsewhere to get involved with the issue of authorship. I expect to dedicate one podcast episode to each scene, but with the longer scenes, we'll need two or more podcasts. And you can get back to me at lamplight at cambridge105.co.uk. And so, with that brief introduction, let's jump right into the play, The Tempest. Act One contains two scenes, with a surprising shift from one to the next. Scene One is a short, busy, realistic scene, just over 60 lines, and is followed by a much longer scene, with magic, lots of talk, and little action, as we are introduced to the major characters and learn the backstory. Today we'll look at the first scene, which lives up to the title of the play by presenting to us a raging tempest at sea. It opens the play with a burst of noise and activity. And so how do you open this scene? The stage directions tell us there's a loud noise of thunder and lightning. We might also want to have sound effects of howling winds. (laughs) But there's a major problem with this when acted on stage. How much noise do we want? And how prolonged? It's always hard for us to settle into the first few minutes of any Shakespeare play as we adjust to the older language, and especially in Shakespeare's day, it took some time for the audience to settle down and be attentive. But with The Tempest, there's the added difficulty that the characters are all shouting to each other over the noise of a storm. In performance, the audience can, however, gather much of what is going on by the actions and the tone of the speakers. We who are reading, of course, have the words clearly to hand, though even these words are not clear without notes. 
Now, even though this is a very short scene, it's always useful to divide a scene into further subdivisions, which we'll call beats. Usually a new beat will appear whenever a character enters or exits the stage. These are moments of shifts in emotional intensity or alterations in action. We can divide scene one into four beats. As we've just seen, the play opens with the noise of thunder and lightning. Is anyone on stage? Is it clear to the audience that they're looking at the deck of a ship? There might be a pause before on comes the master, the man in charge of the ship. He calls for the bosun, the man who runs the operations. The bosun appears, the master tells him to get the men into action or they'll be wrecked. Be stir, be stir, he says, be quick about it, be quick, and then he leaves. <laughs> Did he really need to tell the bosun that things look bad? Well, no, but he had to tell us. And then we see the men springing into action, cheerily, cheerily. This moment can be extended. The text gives no directions for what might be going on, but I think the important thing to show here is that things are working well on this ship. There's an emergency, and the supervisors are doing the responsible thing by giving orders, and the men quickly rush to obey. The ship, even in a crisis, is a well-ordered hierarchy, the master to the boatswain to the mariners. The well-ordered operations do not last for long, as we enter the second beat of the scene, as the nobles enter the stage, that is, come on deck from below. How many people are entering now? We don't know. The stage direction says, enter Alonso, Sebastian, Antonio, Ferdinand, Gonzalo, and others. How many others? Well, it may depend on the size of your stage, of course. Well, and what are all these people doing? It's not clear, but one thing I think they will be doing is getting in the way of the mariners, who are still on stage, trying to do the work necessary to save the ship. How do the mariners deal with these important men getting in their way? Do they dare push their way past, in violation of the social order? But what has become of the social order now that they are on a ship in a storm? Alonso speaks first. If we're reading the play, we will know from the list of characters that Alonso is the king of Naples, the most important person in society, to whom all others must show reverence. Good bosun, have care, he says. That's a reproach. Be careful of what you're doing. But why does he say this? Has the king been standing right in the way and the bosun has tried to edge around the king? Or maybe the ship has given alert and the bosun has teetered into the king? Or would it be more appropriate if it was the king who lost his balance and bumped into the bosun, but then blamed the bosun? Be careful what you're doing there, bosun. The king wants to speak with the master, the person of highest responsibility on the ship, perhaps to give him orders, though how effectual will they be, or perhaps just to get assurance that things are all right. And then something happens, and the king adds, play the men, that is, act like men. Is he addressing the mariners for some reason, or perhaps his nobles, who maybe are shrinking in fear? But you see how many details are left to interpretation or to imagination. 
The bosun ignores the king's request and just implores the king to get out of the way, keep below. Antonio then repeats the king's demand, and the bosun speaks out frankly, perhaps because he can be a little more free to Antonio than he can to the king, and expresses his frustration and anger. You mar our labor. You do assist the storm. That is, you help the storm destroy the ship by disrupting the orderly work. Are the nobles standing in the middle of the stage, the deck, so they can be center stage, where, if things were normal, they would deserve to be? Do they not care about the need for the mariners to be rushing around trying to save the ship? In other words, in other words, are they arrogant or negligent? In any case, we're beginning to see a contrast develop between the traditional social order and the new order arising from this crisis, where the master and the boatswain have the command. But now a new voice comes in, Gonzalo's. We should, I think, notice from the start that he is different from the other nobles, and perhaps on stage he should be visibly different. Is he fussy, like Polonius in Hamlet, whom he resembles in many respects? He tries to calm things, bidding the boatswain to be patient. Sure, the boatswain says, I'll be patient when the sea is patient. In other words, though he's well-intentioned, Gonzalo's efforts are ineffectual even out of place. What cares these roarers for the name of king, the boatswain replies. And here's a good example of the way Shakespeare uses figurative language, in this case taking the most prominent quality of the waves and identifying them by it. They are roarers. They are, in another sense, not subjects of the king. Natural forces do not respect political powers. And this line is the first time the audience realizes that there is a king on board. Perhaps the boatswain gestures over to the king, pointing a finger or nodding his head in the king's direction when he mentions the king's name in that speech. What cares these roarers for the name of king? And so our first sense of the highest political figure comes as a kind of gesture indicating his insignificance. When Gonzalo reminds the boatswain again that the king is aboard, as though, as though the need to save the king's life will make the boatswain work harder to save the ship, the boatswain replies that in his mind the need to save his own life is paramount at the moment. So much for political considerations, tossed aside with a dismissive, if not impertinent, suggestion that if the power and authority of these royals and nobles are so mighty then maybe they should use their authority to quell the storm. Otherwise, they should go down and prepare to meet their maker. And with that, he turns to direct operations, pushing aside one of the nobles or one of their attendants who's blocking his exit. Now, some additions have all the actors exit at this point, leaving only Gonzalo on stage. In which case, his speech is a soliloquy, his thoughts spoken aloud, or spoken to us, the audience. If only the boatswain exits, though, then Gonzalo can be seen giving his speech to the king and the nobles, trying to make light of the crisis with a bit of a joke. It's a bit of a labored joke, though. The old saying is that he who was born to be hanged will not be drowned. The boatswain has been insolent to his betters, and therefore deserves to be hanged, 
therefore he won't drown, but live on to return to land to be hanged. Therefore the ship won't be wrecked. Not very sound consolation, but at least he's trying. And that's the end of this second beat, and there may be a moment of an empty stage before the third beat begins, a repeat of the first beat with the bosun and the mariners struggling to keep the ship intact. We're back where we were before the nobles interrupted. <coughs> but now there's an additional noise, a, a loud howling from below decks. Is it a cry of fear? Maybe there'll be an extra loud crash of thunder to cause their alarmed scream, or maybe the mariners can stagger across the stage, indicating a severe list of the ship which calls up the nobles' cries. And then the fourth beat, a repeat of the second beat, with the nobles back on deck. Now we cannot have just a simple repetition. The second time around must be in some way different, preferably more intense. And I think what we see now is that the nobles are not just arrogant and angry, but, but panicked, which makes them even more arrogant. And it's not quite the same group coming up on stage as last time. It's only Sebastian, Alonso, and Gonzalo. And why have they come up on deck? The king and his son, our first indication that there's a prince on board, are below, praying, we're told. <laughs> is, is that because they're especially pious, or, like Claudius in Hamlet, because they have a bad conscience and are seeking pardon before they die? Sebastian and Antonio are particularly abusive to the bosun, who we know has deserved none of this. We're setting up Sebastian and Antonio as villains. In the midst of this conflict between the nobles and the bosun, who is still trying to do his duty, in come more mariners, wet, as the stage direction tells us. A huge wave must have washed over the ship. Well, there's a challenge for anyone producing this moment on stage. It's only a momentary appearance, though. The mariners rush off stage as soon as they enter, having given up all hope. This is confirmed in a minute by what is called a confused note within. Within at the globe, meaning backstage. Their cries of despair from the mariners, and the bosun exits to try to save his own life, to try to bring back some order in the sailors, it doesn't really matter at this point. Sebastian and Antonio seem finally to accept the fact that they're going to die, and exit, as they say, to take leave of the king. That seems uncharacteristically dutiful of them, but remember we don't know their tone of voice. Does Antonio say, let's all sink with the king, in a cynical tone, with the low word sink, suggesting that there's nothing special about kings now. All people on board will sink. Does Sebastian say, let's take leave of him in a caring tone? Does this show that for all his insolence, he still has proper reverence for the king, who, audiences don't know yet, is his brother? And that leaves Gonzalo alone on stage, just like at the end of the second beat. There's something a little comic in the way he expresses his basic human wish to die on dry land. Comic, I think, because so irrelevant at this point. And he leaves the stage with the wry comment to us, 
the wills above be done, but I would fain die a dry death. Well, yes, who wouldn't? Maybe he shrugs as he exits, or casts his eyes up in a kind of hopeless good humour. Or is he more of a fool, harping on with his preferences about how he'd like to die, as though that's important now? Oh, the scene ends on that note. Now, at the end of a scene, it's a good idea to ask ourselves two questions. What have we learned by the end of the scene, and what have we been led to expect will happen next? Or maybe we can ask, what do we not know at this point? For one thing, we know next to nothing about the ship. Where is it? Where is it sailing from? Where is it sailing to? We don't know who these nobles are, though we know Sebastian and Antonio are haughty and unsympathetic, and we already have some sympathy for Gonzalo, if only because he has drawn us closer to him through his two soliloquies. We also learn that there is a king and a prince on board the boat, and they are praying, not, at least in the fourth beat, interfering with the mariners like the others. If we're paying attention to the theme, we will have been aware of the contrast between the social order, represented by the king and nobles, and what we might call a natural order, represented by the overpowering force of the storm, which upsets the social order and calls for a different, more immediate order. And what, and what do we expect will happen after this scene? The scene ends with the assurance that the ship will break up and everyone will die. But, but we know that won't happen. What, what kind of play would that be? More probably, we might expect them to be shipwrecked on a desert island where they might resolve the conflict between the mariners and nobles, between political and natural authorities, and also resolve the issues of courtesy and respect for others. And perhaps, since Gonzalo has raised that issue of the boatswain born to be hanged, perhaps there might be some resolution about fate and one's efforts to rise above fate. But we're certainly not prepared for what actually comes next, which virtually wipes out <laughs> virtually wipes out this whole first scene as a sham, an unreal piece of magic, and which takes up a whole different set of characters and tone. But that's for next time. See you then. <laughs>